Thinking Basketball Podcast. Welcome back to episode number five of the Top 40 Career Series that we've been running here. And today we're going to get into all kinds of wild territory involving some very tall, springy basketball players. I'm wondering, can you make an argument that Julius Irving has one of the greatest peaks in NBA history or maybe technically ABA history? Uh, How does he stack up as a scorer? Can you make a case he's a better scorer than Kevin Durant? Where does Kevin Durant stack up all time as a scorer? And of course, one of the reasons why we wanted to do these guys together is because there's some similarities, but they're very different in style and in terms of the way they skin the cat out on the court. Yeah, I think that's the cool part of the pairing because you you bring up like their builds, but I think when we actually get down to it, I think in in most ways you can't get really two more diametrically opposed offensive or even defensive players. So I'm excited to get into the granular details with them. When it comes to Dr. J, we've been able to, at least I have been able to get some access to some additional ABA games, some other 1970s games when he was in Philadelphia, and even in some cases, just more early 1980s games in Philadelphia. And you and I have watched some of those uh, in the last year or two. So let's start there, because I actually think for me, looking at Julius Irving, there's always been this question in my mind of like, what happened when he went from the ABA to the NBA? Uh, If you look at the 1977 finals, I mean, they were up to nothing against the Portland Trailblazers. Dr. J still kind of looks like Dr. J. He might very well be the biggest draw in all of professional basketball in the middle of the 70s. Just this extraordinarily exciting player. Really, really big hands. Incredible body control. Uh, you know, 6'7", six, 6'8", six, big vertical leap. And uh, obviously the, the famous free throw line dunk during the during the dunk contest and things like that in the 77 finals he dunks on Walton too many times to to keep track of uh so you might say like Ben what are you talking about you know what do you mean the difference from the ABA to the NBA so let's take a step back and just frame this context and why it's always been such a challenging problem for me and certain other people Irving won the 1974 NBA MVP with New York and they won the title and ABA you mean what did I say? NBA? NBA. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, no. Yeah. The New York Nets. Let's get yeah, let's yeah. get our bearings straight. We're over we're over in the we're over in the cooler league right now where the ball <laughs> is striped, uh, the hairstyles are wondrous, the three-point line is on the court, the coaches are dynamic. And yes, during the game, they announce who grabbed the rebound like it was a made basket. <laughs> did you notice that in some of the old ABA games? Like someone would grab a rebound and be like, rebound by Dr. J, Julius Irving. <laughs> it's like that's just a rebound, man. Yeah, it was the best way to keep track of players because they would get so excited, like Irving with another rebound. <laughs> yeah. I'm not talking about broadcasters. We're talking about the PA system in the gym. In the same way when you go to a game, they say like, you know, ba- basket basket made by Kevin Durant, uh, assisted by Kyrie Irving. No, they would like say that about grabbing a rebound at that point in time. Did you watch um, the crowd during them? Like, did, did people react to that ever? Were they ever like, oh, yeah, golf clap for that rebound? I don't know. It's hard sometimes with the mic to pick up what the crowd was doing, but... Um, Maybe the crowd got into it. I don't know. Anyway, where was I? We're in the we're in the ABA, right? We're the we're the New York Nets, not the soon to be New Jersey and Brooklyn Nets. The New York Nets and Dr. J wins 
MVP in 1974. He wins MVP in 1975. He wins MVP in 1976. And as I said, the Nets win the title in 1974, and they win the title in 1976. So biggest draw in basketball, great stats, great success. His team, which is decent, but by no measure loaded with players who would then go on to also be stars in the in the NBA. You know, the ABA had really nice high-end talent by like 1973, 1974, but it didn't have great depth. So when the leagues merged, you still had a lot of great stars coming from the ABA. We talked about Artis Gilmore. We talked about George Gervin. We're talking about Julius Irving. There's a handful of other players, you know, even names like Dan Issel. There were a lot of high-end talent. But the Nets did not have, it wasn't like you look at the 1976 Nets roster and you're like, oh man, they're loaded. Um, I think their other best players were probably uh, a guy named Brian Taylor, John Williamson. You know, these, these weren't huge names. So he goes to Philadelphia and there's a lot of excitement about the merger, obviously. And the Sixers do make the finals and they are up to nothing. But Cody, we have this incredible thing happen at some point in time where we're able to get plus minus stats for these seasons. Because after the 1977 season where the 76ers make the finals, there's some struggles in 1978, 1979. There's some struggles with Irving individually, like his actual stats and sort of how he's perceived. So to put some numbers on this, he averages 29 points a game in his final season in New York in 1976. When he comes to Philadelphia in 1977, he averages 22 points a game. There's a huge drop in those raw box stats. 29, 11 boards, 5 assists to 22 points per game, 9 boards, and 4 assists. And the team results become kind of, I don't want to say they're totally underwhelming, but in 1978, they make the... Conference finals, they win like 55 games. 1979 is a struggle. They win 47 games. Julius's stats are still suppressed. So there's this sort of question that was lingering about like what happened. People wrote about this at the time. And he had some issues with his knees. Um, If you will often see Dr. J in knee pads during those years, if you watch any highlights or you're able to get any games from the late 70s. So there's a lot of thinking about like maybe his health, maybe his athleticism wasn't the same. And as I said, we've been able to get plus minus data for this era because the legendary 76ers statistician Harvey Pollock tracked it for the team. And when we were able to see this sort of as a historical basketball community, it was like, whoa, why do Dr. J's numbers look so bad? That that was like this huge sort of shocking thing that this guy who is perceived as three straight t- three straight MVPs in the ABA, dominant and all that, comes to Philadelphia and something looks completely different. What do you think that was? Is it like, because I, I feel like some people might immediately go to the simple sound inclu- conclusion and be like, the ABA was a weaker league. That must be what's going on. The NBA is just tougher. It's more physical. That's the issue. What, what do you think the reason is for, for the, the drop in stats? This is something that I've, feel like I've gained a lot more clarity on in the last few years and in the last year being able to watch these old games. The first thing is the ABA had better spacing. It wasn't like a futuristic X's and O's league. You don't watch the game and go like, oh, wow, they're running that action that didn't get become popular until like 2005. It's not that kind of thing. But they, they had a three-point line 
and they had players that would shoot it. And I think psychologically, something about having the line on the court for that period in time, like it didn't take the same way in the NBA, but at, at that point in time in the ABA, having the line on the court helped players space out a little bit more. And then it was a slightly smaller league. You know, it had nice high-end talent, but it didn't have the depth. And you would see teams like, you know, Dr. J was like 6'7", but he could play power forward for his team and things like that. You, you just had a little less size. And so the combination of a smaller league and more space meant the paint wasn't this super clogged up thing. Um, and so that's sort of the context or the environment for me that's such a big deal. Second thing that I've had a lot more clarity on is, Cody, I think I think Dr. J was at his best. I think ABA Dr. J was kind of playing heliocentric basketball. I think he might have been a doctor of physics at that point in time or astronomy because this is like, <laughs> when you watch it, this is like Helio Irving. That was the note I ended up taking after getting to see a couple of these extra games where they would now don't think heliocentrism the way we've seen it in the last few seasons with Luka Doncic and Trey Young and lots of pick and roll. It wasn't that, but it was a lot more. Let's give the ball to Dr. J clear out a side. He can either catch it in the post or operate from the elbow, the pinch post, the wing. And he has that extra space. And that means that if someone comes over and doubles him, he can make a skip pass. He can find an open cutter. uh, He can turn and drive and lay it down. So, in other words, he was at his best using the open open sight lines to pass into, using the extra space to drive into, and kind of running more offense through him that way. Remember, there's no illegal defense or anything like that. This is just organic. Give it to a guy and let him be the centerpiece of the offense. And you switch that to the NBA, and you had way less space. You had way bigger size, you know, more more traffic. You didn't even have a three-point line. That thing went away. There's no three-point line in the NBA until 1980, regardless of whether anyone wanted to use it or not. And then the last thing is the classic legendary fit with another ABA star who came to Philadelphia, George McGinnis, who, who at the time, and you can see it on film, they're just like too similar. McGinnis wanted the ball, and McGinnis wanted to play sort of isolation, heliocentric McGinnis ball. He's a big six 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 seven athletic forward, and it was um, it was not a great fit to say the least. Yeah, that really stands out when you go back and watch nineteen seventy seven. It feels like they both like you said, want to do the same kinds of things. Like they operate in the same areas. They do their, their ISO starts in like the elbow and they kind of, I think Dr. J probably posted up just a little bit more, but that, that was really the shocking thing to me. And I don't know if you want to get into the big questions just yet, Ben, but I was, I was going through the, the possible list, like the players that we could talk about the greatest of all time. And I was like, is Dr. J and McGinnis the worst, like superstar fit? Or is this like the worst fitting teammate for a superstar player ever like not saying McGinnis is a bad player but this is the worst fitting teammate for a superstar level player ever it's it's up there it's certainly one of the more famous examples I mean around the same time I'm thinking of a young Adrian Dantley and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar on the Lakers where it was the same thing like Dantley wanted to use the same spots 
and be like, you know what we should do on this position? Like, let me catch it in like the mid post and like turn and face and back down and everybody get out of my way. And it's kind of like, you have Kareem Abdul-Jabbar on your team. I'm not sure that's what we want to do. And it was a similar thing here. Um, McGinnis can also get a little fast and loose with the ball and, you know, had turnover issues and things like that. And it's like, you're just not going to get the most out of those players playing together unless you can find a way to do it differently, which honestly seems very hard to do. And in this case, it's possible they may have even, dare I say it, Cody, like taken a little bit away from each other. It just was, it just was that kind of fit. Um, let, let, me, let me throw some of the plus minus numbers out there that we have. In 1977, Irving was actually first on his team in net change. These are all raw plus minus numbers. So his on off was plus six. That means the 76ers were six points better. I think this is per 48 minutes because we don't have possessions. I think it's six points better per 48 minutes when Irving was on the floor compared to he was off the floor. They were plus five when he was on the court. Uh, 1978, he was fourth on the team at plus one. That's it. There was almost no difference. They were plus five with him on the court again, but, you know, plus four when he went to the bench. And McGinnis was actually first on the team that year at plus six. So McGinnis kind of had like the numbers that Irving had the year before. Uh, And then it gets super weird because McGinnis leaves the 76ers. But in 1979, Irving is sixth on the team in plus minus change. They were no different with him on the court or on the bench. They were plus two when he was on the bench and plus two when he was in the game. In 1980, he was fourth on the team at plus three. Uh, And in 1981, he was ninth on the team at minus seven. They were way better with him on the bench than with him in the game. It's the kind of numbers that when we got them, we're like, is there an error or so? Or maybe maybe players at that time just didn't impact the game that much. Um, But as we as we see in a second, that's very unlikely because we have more plus minus data from his teammates and it just doesn't it just seems like he just wasn't having that same kind of footprint that we'd expect to see from a superstar when you need mealtime inspiration it's worth shopping kroger where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week you can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points more savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping kroger worth it every time kroger fresh for everyone fuel restrictions apply I find that so strange just because, you know, I I think I've watched a lot more of the late 70s Dr. J as opposed to the early 80s, so I can only really speak on the late 70s. But I feel like whenever I watched him play, especially especially in like the 77 range and a little bit in 79, I'm like, this dude could play. Like he's out there. He's doing some stuff. Like he's not lazy on defense, right? He's he's going around. He's He's defensive playmaking. He's crashing the boards, right? He's passing the players. He's not like a complete black hole. He's actually a pretty willing passer. So it's not like you're, you're giving it to this inefficient chucker that's just like absorbing, um, absorbing possessions. So I'm seeing all this and then I'm, not, I'm hearing this now, Ben, and I'm confused. Like, what, what do you think is contributing to this weird statistical footprint from a guy that on the tape genuinely looks like a very good basketball player? Well, one, you know, we can have noise and you can have numbers that uh, fluctuate. Uh, but of course, over multiple seasons, this is this is raising a big red flag because it becomes less likely 
that it's just uh, the variance in the numbers, hot shot making and things like that. Two, we talked about the fit with McGinnis, but then when McGinnis leaves, things still don't look particularly good. So I'll go to three, which has been cited a lot, and there are articles written about it at the time and things like that, which is the the knee issues. The Again, you would see him with these wraps around his knees. And what's interesting is in 1977, he still looks the same. Like, he still looks like Dr. J. You know, he's got the pop. He's dunking on Walton. Um, I, I can't remember if... I don't think I have a 73 game, but there's some 74 games that I was able to watch. And just this period when he's younger, at his, his athletic peak, he just looks fantastic. You watch the game in like 1978 or 1979, and he's a little stiffer, and he's a little bit more laborious with his movements. So it could have something to do with that. Um, with the fit, the changes in the league, all that stuff. And then I think the last thing that I would say could contribute to something like that, while still holding those Dr. J seasons as good basketball seasons is you just get on a team that's kind of stacked and maybe it's hard to have big impact on that team. That team was more like a multi-star, you know, closer to the 2004 Pistons, closer to a Spurs team or something than maybe people who aren't familiar with it realize, or maybe even people who are historians um, realize because you had emerging as you get into the 80s, you, you had at the end of the 70s, you had Bobby Jones, the legend, the legendary Bobby Jones, just a wrecking ball on defense, running around in circles and, you know, cutting away from the basket and making little extra passes. Bobby Jones, fun Bobby Jones factoid. In 1976, the last ABA season, Bobby Jones, he was either the only other player to receive an MVP vote besides Dr. J, or he was one of three. And I think the third one would have been George McGinnis. I can't remember off the top of my head who the third player was, but Bobby Jones did get one first place vote for MVP that year. Um, So it's funny that they all ended up on the same team in the NBA, but you have Bobby Jones, you had Caldwell Jones, who was a big shot blocking center and pretty good in his own right. But at the high end, Maurice Cheek starts to emerge. And I think as the Sixers move into the eighties and get better, I think the emergence of Maurice cheeks is probably a big deal. Like that 1980 team, they started to turn the corner. Dr. J started to play better. These numbers, the numbers don't really tick up for Dr. J until 1982. But if you look at the 1980 team, Bobby Jones led them in plus minus at plus 8.4. 1981, Bobby Jones led them again in on off in plus minus at plus 11. In 1983, Bobby Jones was plus 11 again. In 1984, Bobby Jones was first on the team at plus 8. And in 1985, Bobby Jones was plus 10. Now he's coming off the bench in most of those situations, so they're a little more targeted, specialized minutes. You might be playing second units. But he always has a great, consistent footprint as a star. He's a multi-time all-star player. These are all Hall of Famers. Bobby Jones is a Hall of Famer. Maurice Cheeks is a Hall of Famer. Maurice Cheeks has some nice plus-minus numbers as well. 1983, he's plus 14. 1984, he's plus 6. 1985, he's plus 14 again. So it could be the combination of that that, you know, maybe he may, and along with the fact that maybe Dr. J wasn't just playing as well as he had played because of all these things that give you numbers that are kind of disconcerting. I think the Bobby Jones call-out's really interesting 
Because when you think about Bobby Jones, I think this is a guy that like really thrives next to other high-end talent. He does a lot of things out on the court that doesn't encroach on other people being able to maximize their skill sets. Because he's what? He's he's a defensive master. That's what he does. Well, he, he sprints out on the fast break. He gets out in transition and finishes. He's a good cutter and finishing that way. Whereas Dr. J, especially in the emergence of somebody like Mo Cheeks, Dr. J, as we see thriving in, in the ABA and, and even showing that a lot more in 1977, even though he's, he's kind of clashing with McGinnis, not not personality clashing, but like play style clashing, is you're getting the ball out of his hands more because Cheeks is starting to take more control of uh, playmaking. Not that Dr. J was like the main playmaker on the team, but he's the kind of guy that thrives the most when the ball is in his hands. You want him to maximize or he maximizes his impact when the ball is in his hands. So the more that that happens, the more that you're losing some of that value. Whereas Bobby Jones, the more the ball's out of his hands, he doesn't care. He still he finds those other ways. So Based on all of this, Ben, do you see as do you see Dr. J as really not having that portable of a game, or is he just next to like a portability god in this case? Well, let me let me put a pin in that. Okay. I want to come back to that in two okay. seconds. Because okay. I think I think you're getting to something that um if if you live through this in Philadelphia, you're screaming right now for for us to say this. The ball handler thing and the inability to play in a style that sets Dr. J up, spreads the floor, and lets him go to work. You had, in 1978, you had Doug Collins, who I like as a player. Think of like an all-star level, off-ball, really good shooter. But he had the ball sometimes. And Henry Bibby was, you know, ostensibly the point guard. And he had the ball a lot. That's Mike Bibby's dad. And then World Be Free. World Be Free was one of those guys that wanted the ball and wanted to do his thing and could get a little bit loose. I think I have a quote in the original Backpicks article on Dr. J from this series five years ago, talking about how McGinnis and Irving are this terrible fit, and then World Be Free doesn't want to pass him the ball. <laughs> <laughs> so so the nature, the, the, the makeup of the team, and yes, like it, it doesn't say amazing things about Irving that you see these numbers, but I do think the makeup of the team was such that there were other things happening that it's still possible to put Dr. J on a lot of other teams and have him be plenty good, even if it was a down year. Uh, whereas in this Philadelphia team, it was kind of an imperfect match. It was, it was like a perfect storm of, of things going wrong for his skill set. Now, to answer your question about portability. I think what's so fascinating about Dr. J is at the same time I'm sitting here going, okay, the ABA has more space, the ABA is smaller, and you get to play through Irving, you get to play Helio Irving. At the same time, this guy is a phenomenal offensive rebounder, regardless of his position, like just he's so athletic and so good because he's a good cutter. He's one of these players who can kind of move into space and he's such a good finisher that if you get him the ball on the move around the basket, he's going to be able to twist in the air, avoid contact. He's going to be able to put pressure on you and draw some fouls or you better watch out. He might just yam it right in your face. Um, And you asked about the ABA crowd. That's when they really go wild. Like he has these things. So Four, we're talking about a guy at his peak in New York was averaging four to five offensive rebounds every 100 possessions and then immediately goes to the NBA and that number drops. Does that number drop because he starts playing with Daryl Dawkins and Caldwell Jones and there's all these trees and they put him in a different spot on the court? Does that number drop because of the lingering knee issues that were bothering him during those years? I don't know. It's probably some combination. But it's fascinating to me because I think you're best off playing one way 
but he also has some skills that you could see if there was another superstar out there, another ball dominant guy, he shouldn't be, he shouldn't go from like, oh, he's the MVP of the league to, I don't know what's wrong with Dr. J. Is he like, is he going to make our all NBA team? Is he decent? Is he a top 20 player? It shouldn't be that level of divide, but there seemed to just be a lot of, I don't know, gunk in the wheels at the end of the 70s in Philadelphia. He's also not taking anything off the off the court when it comes to his defense. He's a very good defensive player, even in those Sixers days, like offering some rim protection, just very active hands, very strong hands. And yeah, so I, I don't know. I, I'm I'm interested by this. Do you have an answer? Because you keep building this up, and I, I want to know this, Ben. What's going on with Dr. J? Well, we should also say that, I mean, his rim protection, his his ability to reach a high point with quickness functionally on the basketball court, both on offense as a rebounder and as a defender, you will see some breathtaking blocks at the rim where he's sliding over in position like he should be. He's a big body. And if he doesn't alter a shot, he'll deter someone from taking the shot who knows like, oh God, Dr. J is near me. And sometimes someone will take a shot thinking just like challenging anyone that they can get a little floater in or scoop it up quickly off the glass. And it's like, Dr. J just he gets to like 10 and a half or 11 feet in like before you can blink your eyes. So he, I do think he's a really good defender. Foot speed isn't great. Man D on the perimeter isn't great. You don't want him playing out in space, I think. And the other thing is his awareness. It's not that he lacks effort. It's just that his awareness as a defender isn't always great. He'll lose track of some threats in the paint or things like that. But I do think you're talking about a guy who you know, could be a, like an all D team level. So I don't, I don't know what the magic answer is, Cody, other than I think between the health and the situation, I don't think he played. I don't think he played at a superstar level in 1978, 1979 in Philadelphia. But what do you think about earlier? What do you think about the ABA? Do you, like what when you have a player that's maybe peaking even higher in this league that's like a much better fit for him the league is set up in a way that's like it's maximizing his skills and then he goes to a team that maybe that impact is tipping off maybe the league isn't built for him how do you how do you handle that when you have kind of these two conflicting uh analyses of the exact same player but in very different situations he used to drive me crazy and i feel like i finally got some clarity on it i think if we were just talking about peaks within the league, like we didn't have to worry about the NBA existing. And we just looked at the ABA and said, this is the league. I think Dr. J's peak in 1976 and just that period in the last few years of the ABA would be one of the best peaks in NBA history or ABA, whatever, basketball history. You know, I don't know if it's top five or top 10, but it would be up there. And I think when I was making the greatest peak series, I was thinking of where to start and what film we had access to. And frankly, Dr. J was one of the first guys that came to mind. But everything we're talking about today really always bothered me because I wasn't sure how to handle it. And I think now I have a lot more clarity on why he was successful in the ABA, in that league, and with his team construction. And Cody, what I've actually kind of done to help myself with this and this project is I've said, instead of just giving Dr. J a valuation based on the ABA... I'm going to try to give all players in the 1970s or, you know, 1968 to 1976, whatever the leagues overlap. I'm going to give all players sort of in my head, the random team that I'm thinking about, the typical average competitive team that I'm thinking about. I'm going to pick an ABA team or an NBA team. 
which means some players are going to get a little boost going to the ABA and some players are going to get a little boost going to the NBA or vice versa, whatever. But I'm trying to think about professional basketball at that time at the highest level across both leagues. And that's going to bring down Dr. J's overall valuation because I think if he were in the NBA in 1976, he wouldn't be as good as if he were in the ABA in 1976. But if he were on a better team situation in 1976, I still think we'd be talking about a peak that, uh, let's just say, is an MVP level peak. I think his offense is good enough, and specifically his passing, we'll talk about his scoring numbers in a second, but his passing in that role is good. It's not great, but one, he's a very willing passer. Two, he kind of will definitely blend his scoring moves. He'll put it on the deck. He'll swoop the ball way up in the air with those big hands. And it's like, is he going to finger roll? Is he going to dunk? No, he will jump pass quite often when a double team or second defender or shot blocker comes over. And then, again, these aren't always great. Sometimes they're a little loose. Sometimes they go out of bounds. But he'll throw a lay down off a jump pass. He'll throw a kick out. And that willing passer part comes into into play for me when you see things like he's on the wing, he feels a soft double coming. There's a couple plays in the 77 finals where Walton wants to float toward him and he'll quickly just make like a little lefty shuffle pass to a guy on the baseline. You get an open 10 footer, you might get a layup, you might get something at the basket. He does that enough combined with his off ball activity, his offensive rebounding. And then, as I said, we'll get to the scoring that I think we are talking about. We're talking about a pretty hefty centerpiece on offense. The passing point, too. I don't I don't want it to sound like he just makes these really open, easy passes. I think something that stands out about Dr. J when you go back and watch is there are legit like home run plays that he sees and he tries them once in a while and they work out once in a while. Like they're pretty, Sometimes they work. Yeah, yeah, they're high leverage passes that he makes them, and you're like, oh, wow, that clearly just created a layup for his team. Like, he's a willing passer, and he tries those passes. I don't know if the off-ball, like, cog type of passing is always there. I didn't quite see that as much. But going back to the peak thing, too, like, 1976, I think I remember the, the f- very first ABA game I watched, Ben. Game one, 1976 finals. And I think it was halfway through. I just texted you, I'm like, it, dead seriously, is Dr. J the goat? Like, does he have the goat peak? I mean, it is it is unbelievable what this guy can go out there. And I think I used unbelievable way too much describing people. This is truly, truly unbelievable. Because I think I think you're, you're, you're talking about the context, too, that he's playing in. His role and just the other players that are on the court, he looks, he looks more massive out there in the ABA. He looks like a player that's just a little bit bigger than everyone else. And, of course, he's not going against Walton, who himself is just a, a massive player. But defensively, he's just, you know, sending shots back, jumping passing lanes, getting out on the break, just the hands and the body control floating through the air. He's unreal to watch in the ABA. And you, you, you don't quite see that as much when you get to 77, but you're still least like i'm seeing flashes of that goat level look of uh what i was seeing in the aba it's almost like 2009 lebron you know he doesn't it's they're not the same athletes he's not as quick but the the essence of what you're talking about where you're watching this big physical specimen on offense and defense flying all over the court uh he just looks bigger than a lot of guys and and frankly more explosive let's get to these scoring numbers ABA scoring numbers in the playoffs. This is adjusted just like all the rest of the numbers we're using in the series. This is adjusted for uh, opponent defense and the true shooting is 
uh, also adjusted for opponent defense. 1974, 26 points per 75, plus 6%. So if the defense gives up 54% true shooting on average, that's 60%. 1975, he plays just a short five-game series. He's 24 minus 3. So that's a that's a negative blip. But then the one you're talking about, Cody, 1976, Dr. Julius Irving in the 1976 playoff run to a title, 30 points per 75 plus 10 percent relative true shooting. Welcome to the club, my friend. That is just that is absurdly rarefied air. Uh, just an absolutely incredible run. Do you have like offhand there? Do you have a do you have a list of 30 plus 10 guys that played so many games in the playoffs we can get that yeah we should get that I, I i need to know how kind of rarefied air because you think about 09 lebron i'm guessing his efficiency had to be there i feel like his scoring was like absurd it was like 30 something like that off the top of my head would a shack like 09 shack or i mean oh nine shack oh one shack maybe there's like a couple jordans in there I tell you what, let's get our stats department on. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we will contextualize how many times we've ever had a championship playoff run or a deep playoff run like this at 30 plus 10, because it is absolutely ridiculous. Okay, so we've looked it up, Cody. We've got our we've got our stats team on it. And we've looked it up since the shot clock in my database. Let's say players who have played 300 minutes in a playoff run. This has been done very, very rarely, this, this 30 plus 10 number. Very, very rare. Amari Stoudemire did it in 2005. Wow. 31 plus 10. Helps to play with Steve Nash. Wow. Uh, LeBron, I can't believe we made it through the entire Steve Nash episode. You alluded to it and didn't talk about how, especially Amari's numbers with and without Nash, are like he loses like eight percentage points of efficiency or something incredible. Anyway, uh, Amari did it in 2005. LeBron James did it in 2017. Kevin Durant did it in 2019. Oh, wow. Yes. Frank Ramsey did it for the 1959 Celtics, although he played 303 minutes. Um, Kawhi Leonard, 2017. Wow. He's 31 plus 13. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in 1977 is 31 plus 14. And the last player to do it, he went 32 plus 15, uh, 2014 Miami Heat, someone named LeBron James again. So LeBron did it twice. It is very, very rare to do. And that's what Dr. Dr. J hit in 1976. And then in 1977, 25 plus seven in the playoffs with Philadelphia. So his numbers went up compared to the regular season. That's why I thought he looked really good physically in the 1977 playoff film that I've seen. And then you start to see like 1978, 22 plus two, 1979, 23 points per 75 plus five. So, so you, you, you see this huge spike and then the suppression we've talked about at the end of the decade. So in 1981, Dr. J wins MVP, but that's the year that his team is seven points better with him on the bench. I'm willing to bet that in the three-point era, 1981 Dr. J is the only one where his team is significantly better when he goes to the bench. It feels like just such a strange occurrence. And then interestingly enough, in 1982, that plus-minus data starts to turn around. He's plus 10 in 1982. He's plus 10 in 1983. He's plus 4.5 in 1984. What was, what was going on, do you think, that 
led to him getting the votes to win MVP in 1981? I think it was the team turning around, but I think it's probably another one of those situations where the the team is turning around in part because Dr. J is playing better. Uh, in I mean, his scoring is 25 points per game, but also in part because, you know, Maurice Cheeks is coming along. Bobby Jones is doing Bobby Jones things. Maybe, maybe you have a better sort of balance and fit. Uh, I mean, they, they made it to the finals in 1980 and lost to the Lakers in six games, very close to winning a title if, you know, Kareem injures his ankle at the end of the series and magic has the huge game in game six. So they, it's like, they keep coming close to winning a title. And yet there's also this sort of hint of disappointment. So I think that's interesting is that that's a weird framing. I feel like we have right now. It's like, we're, we're extolling how great Dr. J was in the ABA. And I know you, you said he probably had an MVP peak in, in the NBA, but also during this time, you know, he wins MVP in 1981, 1980. I think he's second in MVP voting 1982. He's third in MVP voting. So clearly this is a guy that was still viewed as a very good player, even though there may have been like, you know, different narratives, conversations, articles circulating around. Clearly Dr. J was still viewed as like a top five, top X, top whatever player in the NBA. Yeah. I mean, I have him as an MVP peak in 1974, 1975, 1976. I'd call that a solid MVP level peak. And I don't think his 1977 play is, too far behind. So I would still call that an MVP level peak. Now in 1981, when he wins MVP, would I call him an MVP level player? I don't think so. At that point, there's also a little bit of like this, but this guy's such a great player. He's such an ambassador to the game. He's been good for so long. Can he finally win an MVP in the NBA? You know, it's like one, can he finally win an MVP? And two, can he finally win a title? Because in 77, they were close in the finals. And in 80, they were close in the finals. And in 82, they were close in the finals and came up a little short, just a little short at the end each time. And so enter 1983, Cody, where just one of the strangest things, people need to talk about this more. Irving won the 1981 MVP and Moses Malone won the 1982 MVP. And then the 76ers traded like, 30 cents on the dollar to get Moses Malone. So they put the last two, the two reigning MVPs together on the same team. And the 82 76ers team went to the finals and was what? 58 and 24 and lost in the finals in six games to the Lakers. And they're like, you know what we need to do? We need to just get rid of like our fifth or sixth best player for the MVP of the league. And that's what happened. When you say 30 cents in the dollar, clearly they like, what they trade Bobby Jones and uh, no, not Mo Bobby Cheeks. Jones. Come on, no, what, no, no. what was the trade? What did they end up? Because there's no way you could go less than that for for a trade for Moses, right? Well, the Rockets kind of wanted to tank for some guy named Ralph Sampson mm. out of Virginia. Not Ralph so, Simpson, who was one of Irving's teammates. No, not point. Ralph Simpson, not ABA legend Ralph Simpson. Ralph Sampson from Virginia. So. Um, they are considered by many people, and I understand why, I think, I think correctly so, the original Tankathon team going like 14 and 68 the next year and just gutting the team. Like, Caldwell Jones is a solid starting center. I like his rim protection, things like that. But you're on a team with Julius Irving, Maurice Cheeks, 
Bobby Jones, the Boston Strangler, Andrew Tony is coming up. We haven't even mentioned him. He's a multi-time all-star. Like, Andrew Tony's a multi-time all-star. Bobby Jones is a multi-time all-star who got MVP votes in the ABA as one of the great defenders ever. Maurice Cheeks, also in the Hall of Fame, is a multi-time all-star. Julius Irving is the best player on the team. They're like, you know what we should do? We should just trade like our fifth or sixth best player, Caldwell Jones, for the MVP of the league in Moses Malone. Okay, so we talked about Irving's scoring numbers and that incredible 30 plus 10 run and Kevin Durant came up. And of course, I think the first thing that people think of with Durant is how great of a scorer was he or is he? Uh, how, How does he kind of... Um, fit amongst the all-time scorers when we look at these numbers. So I read some of Irving's postseason numbers. Durant, especially when he gets to Golden State, has these ridiculous numbers. So we we talked about the 32 plus 11, 32 points per 75 on plus 11% true shooting. Um, in, in 2018, the year before, he was 29 plus 6. And Cody, in 2017, he almost did it again. He was 29.5 points per 75 on plus 14% true shooting. And in 2012, when the Thunder made a pretty deep run uh, in, the, in the playoffs in the West, winning, winning the West and making it to the NBA Finals against the Heat, he went 29 plus 12%. So he, he does have these... Uh, monster footprints as a scorer. And of course, his regular season scoring numbers paint him. I've done two podcasts on top scores ever, episode number one and episode 50. And I think you can make an argument that Durant has, if not the best, like one of the very, very best sets of scoring numbers in regular season history. Uh, I don't remember exactly where I had him, but you can make a very strong top five, top three argument just based on these scoring seasons, regular season numbers. And then Oklahoma City's got like 29 plus 11, 32 plus 9, 30 plus 9, uh, just incredible stuff. Yeah, and like you said, the, the regular season, the metronome of it every year, just dialing in like the same high scoring, high efficiency. And then I think the other thing that needs to be mentioned about Durant scoring is I think Le- uh, much more, much more than what we were talking about with Dr. J, is that it's very additive, something that we saw in Golden State. The fact that he can slot next to other high-end talent and actually like helps inflate and help next to other high-end talent. Somebody that's really scalable, that the better the team is, like he's able to provide the shooting, he's able to provide the spacing. And so, you know, you take all this, Ben, and ultimately when you rope in the playoffs, what do you think overall? Because we're talking great regular season. Does the playoffs hold up like you were talking about? Well, outside of that early one that you see in in 2012, you don't quite see the same performance in the playoffs in Oklahoma City until he leaves and goes to Golden State. So his efficiency, his numbers in the playoffs in like 2013, uh, plus four and a half percent efficiency in 2014, plus four percent efficiency in 2016, plus two percent efficiency. And Doing greatest peaks, one of the things I tried to look at for a lot of players was how do they perform against sort of strong defenses versus how do they perform against weaker defenses? So the way I typically do that is I say, are you two points better than league average or two points worse than league average that usually gets you like an upper third or bottom third 
of the league to work with. And that may sound like a small thing, but when you only look at teams that are two points better than league average, you usually see something like the average defense faced in that group is actually like a minus four or something, maybe four points better because you got all your twos, your three, but you got your fives and your sixes and your sevens. Um, I'm glad we've done counting today on the podcast. (laughs) We'll get all the way up to 10 by the time we're done. Um, So the question is like, how do different stars perform against elite defenses or really good defenses versus softer defenses when you look at the regular season and the playoffs? Um, You know, most of the time these games are in the regular season, but I I include the playoffs when I run the numbers. So for Durant from 2014 to 2018, uh, that's where I had the numbers when I ran the series because, of course, he he misses the end of um, 2019. When you look at that split, there's actually a decent little drop-off against better defenses. And I think that surprises people. I think that's counterintuitive. I've seen a lot of people talk about how they think Durant is exactly the type of scorer who does so well against good defenses and wouldn't have this situation where he's dropping off. But the actual numbers on this are something like against good defenses in that period, he's about 28 points per 75 on 60% true shooting. And against bad defenses, he's a little higher than 28 and he's at 66% true shooting. So that six percentage point drop, we expect to see a drop because the defenses are harder. But in this case, it's probably about two, two and a half percent, something like that more than, in other words, his relative uh, true shooting goes from like plus nine or 10 to plus seven or eight or something like that. There's, there's some decline that we consistently see in his efficiency and there's other stuff too like um his assist numbers go way down against good defenses and his turnovers go up his three-point shooting against bad defenses quote-unquote bad defenses the lower quality defenses 41 percent his three-point shooting against the good defenses 35 percent so we see these indicators that um, relative to all the other great scorers and kind of high-end players, suggests that he drops off a little bit more against good defenses. Just for some comparison, we talked about Reggie Miller a couple episodes ago. Reggie Miller against good defenses is 24 points per 75, 61% true shooting. Against bad defenses, he's 24 points per 75 62% true shooting. So that's actually kind of that's actually kind of an improvement because again, you would expect like he's going from like plus 7 efficiency to plus 9. You would expect a drop off. Um and Miller's three-point shooting percentage goes up against good. This gets back to the question you asked me about Miller. Like I just think he gears up for it. But even someone like James Harden, um Harden against good defenses, we talked about him in the same episode. He's about 30 and 61% true shooting. And against bad defenses, he's 32 and 61% true shooting. He also has a big drop in assists as well. But just just for some comparison to understand, Durant does seem to have uh, a decent kind of drop-off against these stronger defenses. And I think that's one of the reasons you see this pattern that I've talked about before, where in Oklahoma City in the playoffs against these defenses that can gear up on like like he has a rough series against like Memphis in 2014 right Memphis in 2014 was a good defensive team he was 28 plus two in that series and he had more turnovers than assists 2014 against the Spurs 
27 plus five, more turnovers than assists. 2016 against Golden State, 28 plus two, more turnovers than assists. So these in the playoffs in Oklahoma City, when he's asked to do more, when he's asked to play more of a heavy lifting on ball heliocentric role, the defenses are going to load up on him. I don't think that's his strength. And I think that's where you see some of those numbers that we talked about get cut into. So when you say all these things, especially when you bring in like the more turnovers and assists in a few of those series, the first thing that comes to mind, because I was just going to directly ask, like what what contributes to Durant not being as good against higher end defenses? It it feels like he doesn't have as tight of a handle as some of the other all time scorers. It feels like not sloppier, but it's not quite as tight. He's not quite as quick off the bounce. I think that's something we've definitely seen him decline in the last couple of years, especially the most recent year where he, he relies a lot more heavily on the tougher mid range game uh he can still hit the three-point shot but he's not quite getting to the rim so while he draws a lot of fouls you know he's not Dwayne Wade he's not Michael Jordan he's not these guys with absurd first steps or even the ability to keep the handle going against tighter defenses is that is that sort of what you're thinking holds him back from being maybe an like the true top level scorer of all time Yeah, absolutely. I think I talked about it in his video in Greatest Peaks where he doesn't take this so-called gap dribble. He when when you have a second defender coming into his dribbling space outside around the top of the key at the elbow, whatever, he's picking it up instinctively. It's the trade off of being six, nine and a half barefoot and dribbling that well, like his handles really good for his size, but functionally, it still has these limitations. So I think that's one thing. I think it also goes back to the athleticism podcast and the model that I've talked about recently, where some of the soft athleticism things or quote-unquote cognitive side of reading the game just aren't his strengths relative to these other like top all-time level players that he's competing with here. Because, I mean, spoiler alert, Kevin Durant has an MVP peak. That's why he was in Greatest Peaks. uh, And he has multiple seasons at really high levels. But when we're talking about him being on ball, I think loading up, defenses being able to load up and throw him different pressures and coverages in the playoffs, and especially in Oklahoma City where he didn't have the spacing, he didn't have Sometimes you just didn't have good spacing at all, frankly. Uh, I think the combination of that with the ball handling, with the kind of softer athleticism sides, like mapping the court or anticipating actions and like understanding what, okay, this defender's sneaking over to overload on me. What do I need a cutter back door to do? What's going to be open? What's Steph Curry doing on the weak side? Is he, is he sinking lower by two steps? Where can I move the ball? I don't think all those are his strengths. And I don't think he responds. It gets into like that cognitive load idea of like handling a bunch of new crazy things at the same time. His strengths are what we got to see in Golden State when the pressure was alleviated. And when you had great spacing around him, he could play this beautiful hybrid style. So the the lack of like number one, I've seen these stats we're talking about and these weaknesses we're talking about. I've seen people talk about this with Durant as something that keeps them like fairly low on him, where I get a lot of like, wow, Ben, you really like Durant. You're really high on him. What about all these weaknesses? And it's like, the reason I really like him is the hybrid component, is the fact that he can sprinkle in this type of on-ball activity. And you saw it in Golden State, where you just throw it to him at the elbow and he's deadly. He's still doing this in Brooklyn. He's still so good doing this, 
but you wouldn't necessarily want to run like an all-time championship offense if you had to play that way all the time and you had to balance that scoring with his playmaking, decision-making, passing. But he is a pretty good passer. He can make some reads. And Cody, to what you said, the hybrid part, get him off ball, get him spotting up, get him as a cutter coming through, get him out in transition. And all of those things are adding a ton of value that can play with other off-ball players or other on-ball players, as we've seen in Russell Westbrook, Kyrie Irving, uh, Steph Curry, et cetera, et cetera. I'm, I'm glad you talked about, you mentioned Brooklyn, you mentioned fitting next to Kyrie Irving. Last time, when you initially did the profile on Durant, that was that was 2017. We have one year of Durant on, on Golden State under our belts. It's been a few years since then. And, you know, Kevin Durant struggled with some injuries since then, but he still he still pops up in a lot of people's like top lists. Like people are, have been arguing the last couple of years is one of the best players in the league. This is a top five, top 10, whatever other kind of player in your mind, Ben, uh, how is, how has Durant changed since your initial profile, either in like the scouting report of what you're seeing or your, your ultimate valuations since that 2017 season? I think I'm a little lower overall because of the primary things that we just discussed Um, But I also still like post Achilles injury, Kevin Durant. I don't, I think he's lost a little defensively. And as we've talked about on uh, in-season podcasts, he just doesn't get to the rim quite as much and things like that. But he's such a good, like, he's an amazing shooter. And I think that's not something that's discussed about him. If you were to make a list, we talked about Steve Nash last time. If you were to make a list of the all-time great shooters, you can't get very far without realistically considering Kevin Durant. And I'm talking about like the all-time greatest shooters in the history of the sport. You might be able to get five or ten where you're feeling really good, that you're like, yeah, he's better than Durant. But try it sometime. Um, I mean, his shooting numbers if you look at his mid-range shooting we know he's put forth some of the some of the greatest mid-range shooting seasons ever that we've had at least the ones we've had on record since the mid 90s like 50 something percent from the mid-range and things like that he's a career 88 percent free throw shooter he's been pretty consistent we haven't seen like a huge uptick like we see sometimes at the end of guys careers although we might we might still might see that after his uh, age 33 season next year but I mean, 90% from the line in 2010, 91 in 2013, um, you know, the last decade or so, he's been right at 89% as a free throw shooter. And he's a career 38% three-point shooter, Cody. Like, career 38% three-point shooter. Since, since 2012, 39% from three. And... Again, it goes back to some of his weaknesses with the ball handling or things like that. I do think against better defensive coverages and better defensive teams, when he's forced to carry a big load, you can chip away at some of the efficiency because it's harder for him to get the shots. But when he's playing in a balanced team, when he's playing with other players, we saw this in Golden State, it's like, yeah, you're just not going to be surprised if Kevin Durant has a playoff run like he did in Golden State twice where he shoots 44% on volume from three, 44% on volume. This is like all-time stuff. And, you know, you bring up the context of like one of the greatest shooters of all time. And, you know, you can go back like we talked about last time. Who would we even bring up? Steve Nash was brought up and obviously Steph Some Curry. Curry guy. Yeah, yeah. whatever. Uh, Del Curry. I don't remember which whatever. guy we were talking about. But the difference between them and Durant it's the same thing as like Dirk uh, is it, you can't contest the guy 
Like, he's so big. He's got such long arms. His release point is so high that it feels like he ignores those contests so much. And we talked about it, too, uh, with regards to to Chris Paul during the season, where it's like he doesn't necessarily fall into this just because he's a little bit shorter. The mechanics of, like, getting into his spots and, like, he likes to get to that specific spot and shoot. Whereas Durant, it just kind of feels like everywhere is his spot. Like, if he decides to shoot, that's the new spot. It doesn't matter if there's a guy on him. <laughs> like, it would be fun to see, like, if we could have stats on, like, contested mid-range throughout all of history. I- I'd be willing to bet that Durant has to be really, really close to the top at at whatever percentage that would be, because that's always the thing that, that blows my mind when I watch him. And it's like, he doesn't even know the defense is there. Well, I think one thing that's consistent between what we just saw in 2022 in Brooklyn, post-Achilles, and, like, the heart of his prime if you will these these peak years maybe 2016 Oklahoma City into when he goes to Golden State I think the one thing that's consistent is that if you disrupt him and get up into him and kind of push him off his spots and things like that and you have some length you can bother those mid-range shots I think that happened in the 2016 series against the Warriors and it helps to have Andre Iguodala and Draymond Green and guys like this but the Celtics just kind of did the same thing to him where it's like three or four feet away from where he wants to catch the ball makes a little bit of a difference. Wearing him down off the ball or putting a body into him. Again, it goes back to some of those softer athleticism things. It's like that can start to annoy you or eat up mental space or things like that. And maybe that's a way to chip away at some of the effectiveness of those things. But I mean, otherwise, Cody, even here's the thing. This is how good he is as a scorer and a shooter. We're talking about all these series where he has these problems and he's still like 28 points per game plus 2%. Most players in NBA history would kill for those numbers. Like those are still good. And these are the, this is us trying to contextualize, you know, why he isn't at the, the very, very, very upper crust or why he isn't higher on this list on the very short names that we'll get to in the future episodes. I think sh- shifting the conversation with Durant a little bit, I think the the thing that splits a lot of people when talking about his peak or how good he is, is when people talk about his defense. Because there seems to be, like, two pretty strong factions in this regard. Like, I've legitimately seen arguments, like, really ramps it up in the in, in the playoffs. His rim protection is, is incredible. Maybe at times he deserves an all-defensive spot. And I think if you view Durant through that lens, if you legitimately think Kevin Durant is an all-defensive player, all of a sudden we're talking about one of the greatest peaks of all time. Like, if you grant him that. But ultimately, Ben, I... I just don't necessarily think that's the case. And I'm pretty sure that you also don't think that's the case. You don't you don't think that Durant at any point in his career was really flirting with like this all defensive level peak, did you? No, I, I, I've always liked his defense to a degree because of his length and because of his size. And I think over the years, as he matured and became a superstar in the league, that allows you, especially in the modern game, to play him at the three, play him at the four, play him at the five sometimes. What it does is it gives you versatility in a switching system and it gives you some rim protection. You know, it's kind of cool in Golden State for him to kind of, quote unquote, replace uh, Harrison Barnes in their death lineup that upgraded to the Hamptons five. And now you get extra, uh, yeah, I know the death lineup needed to be upgraded. It's ridiculous. <laughs> but uh, now you get extra rim protection alongside Draymond Green. But I do think people over-index on that way too much because he still has some awareness issues. 
Um, you know, he still has some effort issues. At he's a big guy. He's a, he's a really big body. I, I I can't say this enough. It's hard for six ten guys to just constantly move around. We get we get like spoiled sometimes or maybe the opposite is true maybe people take it for granted and they don't realize that if you sit down and watch five hours of kevin garnett it's not normal for someone that big to constantly be moving that much so you know i think he's a positive defender for basically the entire stretch of his prime in his career i think he's kind of a good defender at times but he's a, he's a nice level down for me from something that i would call like an all-league level defender. I think so much of defense is awareness and positioning and paint paint protection and intention, and, and those just aren't his strengths as a player. It's interesting, because when, when you talk about him versus Dr. J, this is actually a really interesting connection when it comes to defense, defense and their impact, because, again, going back to the 1976 ABA, Dr. J, it seems like he's more of a big, playing more of a four, and I think he gets a lot more of that value from playing the four spot, and when you slot him down to the three and put him next to other players, he's not able to flex that rim, those rim protection chops, his defensive rebounding tenacity, things like that. Durant feels like the same way. If he's playing at the three, and there's more of a traditional four or five playing those defense defensive roles I think you take away what makes Durant better and actually add in things that make him a bit more of a problematic defender because I never really thought he had the quickest feet he's not going to be able to stand in front of a quicker guard or even like a moderately quick guard but if you can get him near the rim where he can make those rotations backline defense rim protection that is where you put him into a better position to be a higher impact defensive player Absolutely. Yeah. Great, great call out on the foot speed, because when he's guarding someone quicker and smaller on the outside, uh, he can often get blown by. But if he's in a position where he can sag or switch or things like that, I think he has some of his best man D possessions, man to man perimeter defensive possessions against these smaller players when he can kind of play the drive, if you will, and and use his length to sag off and give himself an opportunity to stay with them. And then when you're around the basket, his length can be very, very disruptive. And feeling out that timing, I think, is something that he probably improved a little bit through the middle of his career in Oklahoma City and then especially transitioning to Golden State. I also love the comparison. It's why I wanted to have these guys in the same episode, besides the fact that they're so close on the list with Dr. J because Dr. J is like a much better rebounder in a time when rebounding was more important, where you're just like watching these possessions with a little more traffic in the paint. And all of a sudden this giant hand comes up 11 and a half feet above the ball as it comes off the rim and scoops it down and then starts a fast break or something like that. And Durant has some rim protection. I think Dr. J clearly a better rim protector, but they neither of them were great at like reading plays off ball or always being a step ahead of the offense or things of that nature. So they're, they're an interesting comparison uh, to, to stack up next to each other on defense. And then offensively, there's this duality of like running offense through them and all the on-ball stuff we've talked about versus the off-ball game because they both have a little of both. But in Dr. J's case, I think you get your best with kind of a, a proto heliocentric give him space give him room to operate let him use his size and athleticism in durant's case i think you're better off with him off the ball like i give durant so much credit for the success they were able to have in oklahoma city with westbrook and and westbrook is a complex player he's an interesting player he has a lot of strengths and weaknesses but he's a really really 
a tornado out there on offense. And for Durant to slot next to him and have some of the results they had, they're, they're sort of 2014, 2016 playoff teams. They're even going back to 2012. They were really good playoff teams. If you look at some of the numbers that um, you, know, you can analyze a playoff team with, they, they were really good. They were like basically a championship-level playoff team in those iterations. And if you look at the regular season numbers or when Durant went in, and in the lineup and came out of the lineup, I mean, for instance, 2015-2016, Durant misses almost 50 games total in those two years. They played a 43-win pace without him. It's a plus-two offense, two points of offensive efficiency better than the league average. In the games they play with him, it's about 100 games. In those two years, he plays with Westbrook. They played a 60-win pace. So they go from a 43-win pace to a 60-win pace. The offense goes from plus 2 to plus 7, which is usually going to be like your best offense in the league. So I, I give Durant a lot of credit with this ability to fit with other players and still sort of apply the value to the game that we've talked about, both with and without the ball. I, this is I'm really glad you brought this up. This is this is fascinating because when I, when I brought up the McGinnis Irving pairing earlier, when I was going through all the players, when I was going through all the pairings of superstars, I landed on Durant and Westbrook for a second. I almost typed them down, and then I was thinking, I'm like, are they actually that bad of a pairing? And then I was thinking about it more, and I I, I kind of liked the pairing. I think there were a lot of times where Westbrook would get a little shot happy, and I'd be like, come on, man, like why Durant should probably be taking these shots, but ultimately, like like the bullet that West Westbrook was just how unbelievable he was at getting paint touches, drawing attention, kicking out. It gave Durant a lot of space to drive in and operate. And then when I think about it more, I think it's actually the rest of the team's context that was always a bit more problematic to me because I'm thinking about some of the lineups, right? You have Durant, you have Westbrook, and then let's say you have Andre Roberson, Steven Adams, like two very, very notable non-shooters. And then the, like OKC always tried to fill that last spot. Like, you know, they, they threw they threw guys like Anthony Morrow out there who ultimately aren't going to be doing much besides standing in the corner and shooting threes. And I feel like that was always something that frustrated me with OKC is they couldn't figure out like, all right, we have these two guys that actually should look really good together. And they obviously did look very good together. They were very successful, but the rest of the team needs to fulfill these other spacing things. And, and, and the spacing of OKC always, I struggled with it and I never necessarily blamed Westbrook solely for it. At the same time, you have these uh, numbers that we've talked about many times where he goes to Golden State and what happens with, you know, when Curry is on the court versus when Curry is off the court, drawing that extra defensive attention, creating that space, allowing him to operate in isolation. If you look at 2017 to 2019, Durant gets to play 2,500 minutes without Steph Curry in the regular season. That's a lot of time, 2,500 minutes. He is 31 points per 75, plus 5%. He has a really big load. He's creating a ton of shots, an estimated 12 shots created per 100 possessions. Uh, and and Golden State in those minutes is about plus two. They are about they outscore their opponents by about two points per 100, which is it's not too inspiring. It's, it's like an average team. When Curry is on the court in almost 5,000 minutes, Durant's numbers, the same pattern that we talked about, 25 points per 75, so the volume goes down, but plus 11% 
true shooter. That's exactly what you want. You want a guy who can still play with big volume, but as, as his volume goes down and his teammates make it easier, he's just, the shots get easier. Oh, a wide open three. Oh, a dunk. Oh, you know, oh, I'm uncovered or I'm single covered now at the elbow when I catch it for my uh, pinch post, mid post game versus the defense loading up on me. So the volume goes down and, and that team was plus 16. Uh, they were basically, they're basically like, if you look at the all time great teams and you look at the indicators, the 2017 kind of that iteration of the golden state warriors was basically the greatest team of all time. If not the greatest team of the last 40, 40 something years. I, I think I asked you something similar to this, right? But what does he look like in the context with Brooklyn after Golden State then? Like, what do those numbers look like when he's fitting next to guys like, you know, because Steph Curry, again, himself is an amazing off-ball guy that fits next to other high-end talent. Kyrie Irving is actually pretty solid. Like, he's a very high-end player when it comes to fitting next to talent. He can isolate, but he's an amazing shooter. But, you know, James Harden. Definitely not the guy you think of when it when it comes to like sharing the court. And I know that was a very short lived trio in Brooklyn, but what did Durant's numbers look like in in that context? I think it was again a similar kind of thing. I mean, we talked about Harden scaling down his volume when we talked about um him in this series earlier. And again, if you just look at just just take Harden when he played with Durant last year, you had the volume, you had Durant's volume going up to 32 points per 75 at plus 4% when Harden was off the court. When Harden's on the court, the volume comes down to 28 points per 75 and the efficiency jumps back up to plus 8%. So I think it's just a consistent pattern, Cody, that is is consistent with how Durant is as a player. When you actually sort of look at his strengths and weaknesses on film you're seeing this reflected in the data when he to use your word we're going to get to it when he shifts up or shifts down depending on other stars being next to him on the court okay so we know that durant lands somewhere near irving i don't think we've ever explicitly said the numbers quite yet i guess a a twofer of a question here number one where do you think Durant is right now in terms of your valuation? If he peaked kind of at an MVP level player, like most recent Durant, what is it that you saw him? Where is it that you saw him? And then if he continues this trend, like let's say he adds another level, like next season he plays the exact same level. What does that do for his ranking in this in this top 40 adventure? So I still have him as an MVP level player. I think that his peak is something that we would call like a high level MVP level player. I mean, that's why I included him in the greatest peak series. And I would say probably going back to 2012, he hit what I would consider an MVP level. And he's basically been there ever since. Now, if you look at a lot of other publications with Durant, they have him ranked extremely high. They have him ranked top 15 basically at this point in time usa today with their top 75 players last year that we've talked about has him 13th i believe bill simmons has him 15th in the update in book of basketball espn's top 76 that came out earlier this year has him 12th cody slam magazine had him 13th in 2018 Mm. so they may have him one at this point (laughs) if they were to if they were to repull that the point is you will to your to your point like see people talk about Durant as a fringe top 10 player of all time. I think I've seen some people start to include him in the top 10. Uh, And I think it's understandable 
in a way. I mean, he's you rally you you rack up this many MVP level seasons. I mean, 2012, 2013, 2014 is when I think he really hits that high or strong MVP level season. And then for me, he has another one in 2016, another one in 2017, another one in 2018. The problem is his health. The problem is the fact that he missed basically the entire 2015 season. He missed the 2019, the second half of the 2019 playoffs. How you want to evaluate for that, I understand we can be much more fluid, but that's two playoff runs that he missed. He missed the entire 2022 season. And it's it's been nice to see him back in the playoffs in, in the last two years. Sorry, I said the 2022 season. I meant he missed the entire 2020 season too, or as well. Uh, I should have used clear language and not completely <laughs> confused myself on that. But it's nice to see him back in the playoffs in the last few years. But remember now in the last few years, he's played like 50-something percent of the games in the last two years. And while that's much better the way I've been doing this project than missing playoff games, that still chips a little away at your value. So so you've got two, three, basically three years that he's voided in the postseason of his prime of the last like nine or 10 years. And that's a thing that in this project is really, really holding him back. I mean, if he had those three years right now, he'd, he'd probably be, oh man, I want to say up at like top top 15, 14, something in that range if he hadn't missed that time. And to answer your question, if he just comes back next year and plays at a really strong level again, he will jump up, but it'll probably be, uh, it could be three or four spots. Mm. He might move up, something like that. Yeah. So this is an interesting psychological thing because what you just said, if, if, Durant had played these these playoffs or seasons where he didn't play, he would actually be in that same range of all the publications that you referenced before. Do you think that, like, not to get in people's heads, but do you think people sort of gift him those seasons as if he's at full health during that time? He checks the boxes. He's He's got a championship. He's got an MVP. He's got a finals MVP. He's got the great points per game and um, all the sexy scoring numbers. And he, he's a classic, big, giant, athletic body. You can throw it in. Everybody can get out of the way. And he can, Cody, he can do everyone's favorite thing. He can go get you a bucket, right? Uh, so I think all of that is working in his favor to kind of prevent him from being underrated or having any narratives cut against him. But I, I do think, I don't know how much people care about the fact that he's missed those things, the way they do this in their head. And, and, and to be, you know, as you said, I would probably have him right there myself because I think pretty highly of him. But even if you just look at his, his voting results, we've tried to keep track of contemporary opinions throughout this series. He's 10th all time in all NBA shares. Hmm meaning the percentage of all NBA votes he could get every season is 10th all time. Uh, he's had He's been on the all NBA ballot 12 different times. He's 14th all time in MVP shares, finishing top five in MVP for seven straight years from 2010 to 2016. Of course, then once he went to Golden State, there was like a rule that said neither he nor Curry could be acknowledged as good regular season players. That's, that's so strange uh, to look back on those voting years. But I mean, when you look at the body of work, it is pretty consistent with like a, let's say, top 18, top 15 player of all time. 
Okay, so the last couple of episodes, we we brought up these guys that had these these long, all-NBA-type peaking careers. You know, John Stockton, uh, Reggie Miller, guys that don't necessarily have the peak of Durant, but unlike Durant, don't have these injury concerns, play for, for forever, Ben. They literally just play forever. Um, but Durant feels like one of the first times now, Durant and actually Dr. J, where we're getting into these guys that have multi- MV multi-year MVP level peaks. So, like, what differentiates them to you on this list? Like, help me out here. Does how many MVP level seasons does the Doctor have? How many MVP level seasons does Durant have? Like, what are we talking about in terms of these two guys? Well, I think Durant has a higher peak for the reasons that we've discussed, and because of that, I have him. Let's say somewhere at seven maybe eight i think if you count 2012 like eight mvp level seasons and i would call five of those for me in the strong mvp level category so he's he's getting a lot of mileage there he's he's essentially way ahead of irving in that regard because i only have irving with five only only five Mm -hmm. mvp level seasons yeah um but Irving, of course, finished his career and retired and was really good out of the gate. That's another thing that I was impressed by, like how good he was in Virginia when he started back in the early 70s. So Irving overall ends up with what I would say, Cody, I'm going to I'm going to call it 15 all-star seasons. Yeah, 15 all-star seasons. And Durant, um, he's got a good number, but I think Durant probably only has 11 so Irving is make, like catching up here and, and gaining ground with these sort of pre-prime, post-prime, just being really good for a really long time. And, you know, we talked about some of the numbers with contemporary voting. I mean, Dr. J uh, in the NBA, he has, you know, didn't, didn't have his best years, right? His best years were in the ABA, but still... Cody, the man in real life was a 16-time All-Star. You know, he made he made the All-Star team every year he played in the league. And I, I kind of, you know, despite all the things we've said from 1972 to about the mid-80s, he's still basically an All-Star level player to me. If you watch some 84 or 85 Philadelphia 76ers, like he, he I think he only really probably falls off uh, in maybe 1986 and then maybe 1987 is kind of the end. But he's such a good athlete. He's such a big body. Uh, he just He's still very, very good in the 80s at the end of his career. I was going to ask you about that because I just pulled up his basketball reference page. And this is one of the few times where I see that he literally has the all-star indicator next to every single season he's in the NBA. And I was doing quick math. I'm like, he's in the league. He's in either league for 16 seasons. You, you have him at all-star pretty much his entire career that has to be like like i I don't know i don't want to spoil any players when we talk about but i I can't imagine you have too many other players that that you feel the same way about yeah i just checked it's technically 14 Mm. 14 all-star seasons i think he's finally not an all-star in 1986 i think you finally start to see he gets a little older you start to see the statistical signals drop off and things like that but um 14 all-star seasons is is quite a huge number of all-star seasons. And as we move forward on guys, we will see players around that number with a few more. That's part of the reasons why they're higher. But in this case, it's something that helps Julius overcome having a weaker peak than Durant. 
So I think ultimately this shows, again, like, Irving is able to be up this high because of this, these 15 seasons, 14 seasons, however long. He's he's at all-star level for a very long time. But then you also get, like, they split a little bit where Durant just has a higher higher peak, more of those MVP-level seasons. So I think that's what's really fascinating once we get, once we get kind of to this top 20, Ben, like you start having some really, really good seasons and like the splitting hairs between them. It's like, all right, well, this guy's had this many all-star seasons, but it was an MVP for a decade, basically. And I think that's a really fascinating comparison between these guys. Many of the other publications that we talked about have Irving himself ranked between 15th and 19th. And in fact, all of them that we've ever talked about do. In this case, I have uh, Kevin Durant ranked 21st all-time in most valuable careers right now and Julius Irving ranked 20th. So this I think this is a little bit lower than you had him before. I don't know if this is one of those things you're like, "Ah, eh, it's actually pretty close to my range." Or do you feel like your range on Irving has changed a little bit since the last time you you did his profile? Yeah, I mean, I, I think in in thinking about the ABA and the NBA, I mean, I could still have him we're talking about guys here we just talked about easily where Durant could be. Uh, and if you were higher on him in some of these seasons, you know, he would move up a handful of spots. Irving is the same for me. I could have Irving as high as 13th. There's still some uncertainty. How do you handle the ABA, the NBA, these injuries, these weird numbers with Philadelphia? But that also means that, you know, if I go lower on him, he could be around, let's say, 25 or so. Um, just as a reminder, there's kind of a group of players there that he would start to touch. That group is Dwayne Wade at number 25, Scottie Pippen at number 26, Moses Malone at 27, Rick Barry at 28. I should mention that because I think last time or two episodes ago when we read Moses, I had his number wrong. I completely, I completely forgot to account for the fact that he had an eye injury in 1986. That injury brings him down. So Rick Barry, 28, Moses Malone, 27, Scotty Pippen, 26, Dwayne Wade, 25, a low end of Irving, maybe could take him into that group for me. So he, he's got a he's got a decently wide range here. Last episode, we talked about Stockton at 24, Steve Nash at 23, and Charles Barkley comes in this time at 22. Some minor changes in getting to go back and do the Michael Jordan video, watch a lot of early 90s playoff games, watch some Barkley stuff and all these projects. He comes up. We're also working on a Barkley video at some point. So Barkley, 22, uh, then Durant, 21, Julius Irving, 20. If you want, in the Patreon post show, we're going to talk a little bit more about Barkley and some of those changes. But any other thoughts before we wrap this up on Durant and Irving? And next time, Cody, that means we are we are smooth sailing in the top 20 for the rest of the however many episodes we get through. It's just going to be superstar galore. It's going to be great. We're just going to talk about a bunch of guys that nobody has strong feelings about. So no one's going to complain about any of it. If you want to support this show, check out patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball. We have a ton of additional content there. We have all a database of all the historical stats that we reference in this series and a ton more. Thanks, as always, for listening all the way through on this one. I hope you are enjoying this series. And, of course, wherever you're listening from, I hope you are having a great day.